Hello and welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation Podcasts. Today's episode is about women in leadership and creating inclusive workplaces where people can thrive. And I am delighted to welcome Susan Brady, the Deloitte Ellen Gabriel Chair for Women in Leadership at Simmons University, and also the first Chief Executive Officer of the Simmons University Institute for Inclusive Leadership. Susan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Susie, for having me. Delighted to be with you. Yeah, we're delighted to have you on the show. Susan, we share this quest that you have dedicated your time, energy, and research to, which is advancing women in leadership. And I think it's so important today as we hit these global issues where we need women at the decision-making tables to create a more equitable and inclusive system. You've already published two books on leadership and your third co-authored book, which for those of you that are watching and not listening, we can see behind Susan. (laughs) That's where I would like to focus today. So clearly the title caught my attention straight away, Arrive and Thrive already. And then when you read underneath, seven impactful practices for women navigating leadership. So there I'm intrigued. But before we go there, for me, this is such a key subject in two ways. Firstly, women and their place in organizations and their seats at decision-making tables, but also the subject of inclusive leadership, which is clearly not just about women and is about, you know, making conditions for everyone to thrive. So I would like to unpack them both a little bit, but can we start with the title? Because I'm still intrigued. So Arrive and Thrive, why this title and what inspired you to write that? <laughs> so uh, the truth is, you know, I when I stepped into the great honor of the the, the endowed chair that I hold mm. at the university, I was thinking that a, a, a useful project might be a book of some sort. And I had already written um, this is actually my fourth book, but the the third is a playbook um, about inclusive leaders that I that I wrote Ooh. with my colleague Elisa Van Dam when I first came here, mm-hmm. and um, she played lead author on that. But Arrive and Thrive was born out of a conversation with three very senior women mm-hmm. who, with me, confessed to each other that it is really hard to keep it all together, and and that there's not a lot of support once we do mm-hmm. arrive at some level. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's funny, to be honest, I feel like the arrive part is, should be smaller and the thrive Thrive part should be bigger. bigger. (laughs) Um, You know, I look at my former work and that's more about, you know, navigating the hurdles to advancement. And and I I certainly can talk about that as well. Mm. And the inner critic, no? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Which is a a big barrier um, for everyone, but women in particular. Mm. The arrive and thrive concept was, what if we, I'm looking around and I'm seeing women at senior levels and I would not accuse them of thriving or pretending even to be thriving. Mm. It looks stressful and hard and overwhelming. And then, you know, look at senior leaders across the, across the gamut and you see people who might put themselves last and not Mm. take care of themselves in certain ways. So Mm. that's not a very attractive model for effective leadership. No, clearly. (laughs) I think we have a marketing problem to begin with, Susie, Mm. when when we even talk about leadership, because the concept and construct of leadership as we know it is fundamentally a male developed, created construct. And Most of the lion's share of work out there today on leadership and leadership mm. development is written by men. And so how would women thrive mm. and what needs to be the core practices mm. in order to really own our thriving? So anyway, so that's that was the genesis of it. And I am so 
honored to have the co-authors that I have. You know, Lynn Perry Wooten is the president of Simmons University and a, and a scholar in crisis leadership. Janet Foudy is the executive chair of Deloitte US. So she runs all of the US operations. She's mm. incredibly uh, respected. And uh, between the three of us, we've seen, I don't know, 85 years of life in <laughs> and we had a lot to say, but came from mm. different places about it. Yeah, which is diverse in itself. Yeah. And I think, you know, holding those diverse perspectives and as we go into digital, I mean, I know you talk about it in your seventh practice at the end of, you know, readiness or preparedness, you call it, for, you know, this digital world and this digital culture and ways of working, which, of course, needs human collaboration. And for me, what women bring to the table more readily than men, even though the leadership model is not always built on that. So that's really interesting. But maybe we could come to that later. But you outline the seven practices, therefore. And I like the way it's about navigating the playing field of business and how you can play with that, essentially, as a driver for change, as opposed to being a victim of the fact that that playing field isn't level. What's your preferred practice personally? And do you have to start with practice one to get to practice seven? Well, you don't have to, but here's mm. here's, here's the answer to both questions is mm. when we lead from our best self, we are honoring our strengths and talents. and they are being called by others to be in service mm. and we're, we're feeling some level of vitality. When those three things come together and we are approaching a situation, a conversation, a relationship, mm. place of I bring value and I know my unique value and you bring value and we know your, your unique value and we both can be equally respectful of one mm. at the same time. We start to see things like greater innovation, greater yeah. creativity, mm. better problem solving. Mm. That's the breeding ground for psychological safety, for inclusive mm. cultures. And mm. so for me, you got to start with from where am I speaking? Yeah. And that involves the premise that has pretty much driven, it's been my muse, Susie, mm. Mm. an idea that I was used to very early in my career about the following, which is what we think and feel drives what we say and do. Mm. So most leadership work, as you know, is say, yes. do. Yes. And so I've been thinking about thinking and feeling, and that's how I got started all in the, in the inner critic. It's like, gosh, you know, we're not at our best self. If we no. don't think that we're worthy, no. we're not at our best self. If we think we're better than others mm. and do and say whatever we want, I don't know. I'm, I'm calling for best self across the board, all mm. humans, you know, not <laughs> yeah. but, uh, you know, so, so there's a reason it's the first practice. And I mm. do believe if you don't lead from your best self and return to your best self, cause it's not a stationary mm. uh, destination because life happens and we get yeah. stressed out and we get picked off and all sorts mm. of stuff. If we don't do that, it's going to be really hard on mm. the mm. other six practices. Absolutely. And I think it sounds so simple as we discuss it, just turn up as your best self and, you know, speak yourself into the world, et cetera, et cetera. Oh. But, but I mean, and you've created it into a practice, which is brilliant because it doesn't just happen like that, unfortunately. No. And I the culture know. isn't ready to receive it, is it either, or recognize it. So I would love it if you could walk us through that whole idea of what practices, deliberately developmental, of course, that you can create for turning up as your best self. I, yeah, I mean, it's informed by so many brilliant people in mm. all sorts of walks of life, from sociologists to anthropologists to yeah. psychologists. Mm. Here's the behavioral economics. 
here's mm. the essence. We have to slow down our thinking and notice our thoughts and feelings and take space between whatever is the stimulus and the response so that we don't react mm. in a way that causes harm to mm. us or to others. Mm. That's best self. That's it's a second consciousness. It's a practice that's moment to moment mm. that begins with first knowing who you are at your best. A lot of people can't tell you yeah. who they are at your best. Yeah, yeah they've so, never thought about it. Right. Like, <laughs> you know, and, and this is where, you know, in defense of all women's leadership programs, when people say mm. it's not about fixing the women, of course it's not. Mm. And and Yes, and I like that. <laughs> if, you if you can't tell me five things that make you fabulous, you have work to do. If you can't tell me three ways immediately that come to mind how your unique value has been called on mm. to add value to others, you have work to do. If you can't tell me the last several times that you lost track of time because you were just jazzed by what you were doing yeah. so you can recognize your own joy and vitality, you have work to do. So the very first thing we have to do is get to know ourselves at our best mm. and Velcro to her, you know, yeah. <laughs> because we want to create an allergy to when we're not her. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, I notice and it, and it starts with noticing. So first we get to know mm. who we are at our best. Mm. What are the conditions? What are the enablers? What are the blockers? There's going to be, you know, relational, personal practices, situational dynamics that enable our best self and yeah. that actually block or disable our best self. So getting to know all that is really, really important for our own efficacy and happiness. And I think it's a precondition to thriving. I really mm. do. Mm. And I like the idea of velcroing. So and sort of creating an, an allergy to what disempowers us. But it's also about creating an addiction, isn't it, to what empowers us? Yeah. Because even though it's even though it's really hard and you feel uncomfortable, I think best self is often about getting comfortable with feeling a little bit uncomfortable because that's where the growth is. Right. Totally. And look, you know, for your listeners, I have to say it's not selfish <laughs> to no. honor you and your authentic mm. self mm. as you navigate your life. Mm. there's no scoreboard where you're mm. going to get special extra points for being needless and for leaving yourself behind yeah. or putting yourself last. Yeah. And I think, you know, leading from within, as I call it, that sort of calling of this is who I am as a leader. You can't do that if you don't accept yourself and if you don't love yourself and if you don't understand your own triggers, because like you say, humility isn't about not knowing yourself or not answering your needs. Um, I get a lot of people saying, oh, but I need to be humble in my leadership. So I put everybody else's needs before myself. And I think yeah. that's an interesting discussion in how things get thrown into corporate environments and then become buzzwords and then everyone has their own definition. Yeah. I, I also think get ready to be human. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We hold yeah. the bar. I mean, I've I've written, investigated, taught this for almost 20 years. Mm. And, and I I had a moment yesterday. Susie, where I was reactive. And in the moment I knew I was reactive and I thought, okay, I need to stop talking. Like 
I know that I'm triggered at this moment. And the best thing I can do, which is the second step after you notice is push pause is stop is take time a out. Mm. I call it adult timeout. <laughs> I like that. Adult it, can timeout. Micro, it can be a micro timeout or a macro. Mm. Micro timeout is leaning back and breathing and reentering mm. the conversation. And macro is shutting down the conversation, taking a walk or, you know, you don't come back until you mm. can be productive. Mm. Absolutely. Which brings me to another concept I wanted you to walk us through for our listeners, which is being competently courageous. So I really like this lens. I found it really helpful. Uh, And I would love it if you could just walk us through that concept and how it plays out of feeling competently courageous. Yeah. So, you know, this is by a scholar at the University of Virginia. And Mm. the way he defines competently courageous is that you created the right conditions for action by establishing sort of a strong internal reputation around those who you work with and carefully choosing your battle, you know, <laughs> based on your values, right? Mm. So, and, and managing, you know, your messaging and emotions. And so it's kind of a different lens when you look at like the four principles yeah. of being competently courageous, mm. a different lens to what we just talked about. Mm. Knowing your best self and returning to your best self when you get triggered, which is taking the space between stimulus and response. So you don't respond in a reactive way that's going to harm the system Mm. or the person Mm. or yourself or be suboptimal. So it's being thoughtful. It's Mm. first laying the groundwork for taking action. It's definitely choosing your battles based on values. We talk about values in a chapter about authenticity. Yeah. We have offer a values chart. I mean, there's mm. plenty online, but I, I encourage people to do a values check every six months because mm. you land on the same few, but, but the context of our lives changes as we mature. Yeah, and so, absolutely. so will our, some of the prioritization of our values. Mm. Um, the third is around persuading in the moment, which I think the only part of this scholar's work that's tricky is I don't think everybody's able to, you know, persuade in the moment. I think those of us who wake up extroverted are probably (laughs) better at thinking and speaking at the same time. That's not always good though, Susie. No, I agree. (laughs) um, But I think the element that's Mm. essential here for those who don't think on their feet as quickly as others is to frame your issue so that the audience can relate to it. Mm which I'm going to come back to because you and I had a pre-conversation yeah. about the entire field of women's leadership, having a dilemma with this. Mm. And the fourth step or principle about competently courageous people is to follow up. And this is where appreciation comes in and thanking your supporters and, and also quickly repairing. And so, you know, I'll remind us all that, you know, relationships are a constant cycle of harmony. We're getting along. Mm. Disharmony, we're fighting. and repair. What courage really counts on is seeking to repair quickly, Mm. right? And honorably, which means honorably is I might not have intended the impact I had, Mm. but any given moment, I can own that. My intention was X and I landed as Y. I am so, I would never want to land that way for you Mm. um, or have that impact, right? So it's owning your stuff without going into rationalizing your own intention yeah. and devaluing how you show up for another. Mm. And it's being appreciative. Like, mm. thank, thank you. It's mm. free. I just want to remind yeah. everybody. <laughs> you know, here's how you create an organization where people feel valued. You mm. say, thank you. 
Thank you. Mm. Thank you. I see you. I see what you bring. I saw what you did. I appreciate you. Mm. Boom. Mm. Yeah. And you can be courageously curious as well, because I've heard a lot of curiosity around. I'm getting curious now around why my intention didn't land in the way I expected it to and I would would have liked it to. So getting curious about why that doesn't happen and taking it away from the defensive reaction of I must have said something wrong. I must have done something wrong. I'm not communicating properly, which is not always the case. Curiosity is the fuel to the car that is best self. Mm. It is your gasoline. Mm. Curiosity. Car won't run without it. Your Mm. best self and therefore best leadership can't run. Mm. I mean, it'll sputter, but people will quit you. The car will break Mm. down. (laughs) Mm. You know? Um, So to be skillful, we need to be curious about ourselves, Mm. about others, about Mm. our impact, Mm. about our situations. I I tend to remind the smarter the people I work with, the more degreed, particularly doctors, but also scientists. I find I remind them a lot that every situation is more complicated than any one person can see. And when when we don't think that's true is when we get into trouble. Mm. Yeah, because everybody essentially, as imperfect human beings, holds a very different perspective. Even if you share the same view on something, your perspective will not be 100% the perspective of someone else, will they? So if I bring it back to our dilemma around leadership programs, I, I, you know, we, we had a, we had the conversation before we came on the show around the language we've created around diversity inclusion and whether that's inclusive or not in terms of helping people to understand what inclusive leadership means for them, men or women. I think we have a dilemma here, right? I mm. think we've created a narrative and a set of language that feels actually at the root right, wrong, good, bad. Mm. White binary, binary, and mm. ju- and fueled with judgment because if mm. you mess up, mm. right, there's real consequence. That's not a winning strategy. No, clearly for any, not for, for any shifting mm. or changing that we need to mm. do. Right. So how can I come in? Why would I want to come towards that? You know, in America, we saw it a good deal when, you know, the summer during the pandemic, George Floyd was murdered. Yeah. A lot of CEOs, a lot of leaders of across industry, across sector, really struggled with how to react and what to say. Mm. And what I make up about that is it was driven mainly by fear. They didn't want to mess up. Mm. They wanted to be on, on tune, which is good. And is, you know, when we speak from best intention mm. and don't have the impact we intended, our only recourse is to apologize and say, wow, my intention was this. Mm. I see this as the impact. I'm going to try it again. Right. And so it's not about giving a hall pass or enabling bad behavior at all. It's allowing all of us to be in a learning journey about the context we find ourselves in. Mm. And it puts us back on that equal footing because we are humans and we all react in the same way differently but in the same way to certain situations you know i run an institute for inclusion and i've Mm. been i've had somebody you know share with me truth tell with me about a microaggression i've noticed my own flash of bias or how stereotype hits me Mm. i'm human what i can do is 
going back to sort of slow thinking and noticing, mm. it, oh my gosh, hang on, that's yeah. not a helpful frame, Susan. <laughs> and, and getting defensive about it is also not helpful. So mm. I want leaders to move back into productivity as quickly as possible with themselves and with the people around them. And I think the name of the game to do that is starts with a more conscious, more aware frame of mind, not right, wrong, good, bad, but wow, my intention is that. And by the way, if you as a leader, I believe, display, talk about, are transparent with, I'm a learner on the journey. Mm. Because, you know, for me, I woke up white, I woke up woman. I know I have privilege because I'm tall. I know mm. I'm, I'm privileged because I'm white. Mm. I didn't ask for these. And I don't know what your experience is. And I really want to create an environment where it's a great place to be for everyone. And I think I'm honoring your value, but I might, I might be missing. So guys, tell me, help me, help me be my best self. So that we all can show up fully. Like, what is wrong with saying that? What did I just devalue in myself by announcing that I'm learning? You know what I mean? Yeah. But that's quite an open, transparent conversation, isn't it? And it often feels quite vulnerable. And if I look at organizational working culture today, it's still very much on um, a culture of fear as opposed to a culture of courage. I mean, if I come back to so showing up as your best self, embracing authenticity, cultivating courage or being competently courageous I really like that. I really like that phrase it brings me to the next point which we've just been discussing which is basically resilience mm. um, and how important it is for all leaders but I think particularly for women in male-dominated envir- environments fostering fostering re- resilience is a really important skill and I really like the fact that in the book it's there's a positive discussion around what they call positive deviance which and I'm just going to quote, it's like more than surviving, it's thriving while being resilient. And I think that is what being a woman in a senior position in an organization today is about. It's around trying to thrive whilst also building your resilience, because as you say, we don't know what's going to happen next, do we? So, Yeah, I mean, I, I have to tell you, and I've said this before, uh, the whole concept of including resilience as a practice for me. I had a dilemma about it because I thought if you wake up a woman, you know resilience. Uh, <laughs> if you wake up a woman of color, you know resilience. Yeah. Do we, must we foster it? <laughs> My co-author Lynn, you know, she's she, her specialty is crisis leadership. She knows a lot about resilience. I learned a lot in this chapter mm. about how purposeful we can be, how intentional we can be to foster our own sort of muscle of. Yeah fortitude and agility, you know, mm. resilience, right? So, yeah. so the positive deviance concept, I have to tell you, you're the first person that's even brought it up. And I've done a lot of this, this, okay. stuff. I don't, I don't know why there's a lot in the book, right? There's, yeah. a lot of <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of topics, but I lost days of my life when I was researching this because I was, it's like, I had an intellectual sort of like, Oh my gosh. Mm. And I wanted to read everything I could get my hands on about it. It was just, it was fascinating. So for your listening audience who hasn't heard, positive deviance is premised on the observation that in any context, certain individuals confronting similar challenge challenges or or resource deprivations will Mm -hmm. employ like successful strategies that enable better solutions. And, you know, 
it's not that we have more women at work who are positive deviants than men. That's not what the research, no, no. But the research does say that, you know, the four steps that are deployed are begin with a positive mindset to create simplicity, applicability, brevity, mm. and those are, you know, defining the problem and the necessary outcome, determining sort of the common practices, discovering the uncommon successful behaviors, and then mm. just an initiative using the learnings. And all of this takes connection and connecting intelligence is what I see women do more naturally than those who identify as men. So I have not seen a study that women are more emotionally intelligent than men. I have seen data and it's compelling that the way we navigate relationally Yes in mind more connection points therefore we have a little wind at our back and we're confronted with a dilemma or a challenge that we're trying to solve because we're going to connect dots yeah right and that's ultimately what positive deviance is about yeah well it caught my attention because I'm a massive optimist and the positive and deviance next to each other was like, whoa, what, what's this about? So I got curious. Yeah, that's um, probably good. That's probably good. I was like, yeah. yeah, what's this? And then I realized, and then when it links a connection, because I wholly believe that that, you know, women bring that more readily to situations just innately almost. And connection is what we're missing for me. Connection to oneself, connections to your team or community and connections to the organization. And I know you discuss it later in the book around different models of how to knit all that together. But I think, you know, the I to we to us is one of the most important parts of connection, Mm. keeping it human, you know, making meaningful relationships when you build communities and when you network, not just because you need to know how many people you've got in your network or you need to be connected to him or her because you want this or that job. And I think I like the idea of resilience about that, building like a safety net of connection for people in your network. Oh, yeah. And, you know, look, Susie, if there's ever a silver lining to the pandemic, yeah, you know, before March of 2020, many of us were still operating in a paradigm where we were working with human resources. Hmm. And some of them we got along with better than others. Some yeah. of them enjoyed being around better than others. Yeah. And some of them we really didn't like truth of what happened with the pandemic is for knowledge workers anyway, we save for the healthcare professionals who Mm. get up and go to work every day. Mm. The rest of us were were confronted with the human beings Mm. who we've been working with. Mm. The minute that happened, the minute that I started to see, oh my gosh, you have a cat in your backyard, or you have a child running across, or you have interesting decor, or or you look vulnerable and you have a blurry screen because maybe you're not in a position where you can show me your back. Like so much vulnerability yeah. and so much humanity came to the front, the forefront. Mm. And here I, you know, people like you and me have been talking a long time about inclusion is paying attention to the human being. Mm. It is about honoring people's uniqueness and helping them understand for themselves what what makes them uniquely mm. valuable. And making not just making room for that, but but utilizing it, maximizing it. So you belong. You're unique, and you can belong. You know, this it, this requires connection. Yeah, requires connection mm. to self and to other and to the organization. Mm. And I don't think that there's going to be a lot of appetite to go to work anymore for those who have choices. 
mm. and feel disconnected with mm. the other human beings. Mm. You know, I think leaders are, it's incumbent <clears throat> on leaders to create yeah. mm. that connection. That connection. And I think COVID has done that, but it, it's quite, um, it's also forced people to be intentional about being, if I use the, use the word inclusion, inclusive, but being intentional about asking how people are, checking how they feel, understanding where they're at, because otherwise you can go to the other extreme of that sort of polarity, which is making it 100% transactional because you're on the screen and just, did you do this? Did you do that? Thank you very much. Check in tomorrow. Boom. So I think, you know, if we're not intentionally inclusive, we can be unintentionally exclusive. And I think, you know, for me personally, as I learned to sort of do my craft via a screen you know it's something I think of constantly and it's something I discuss a lot with leaders and I think you're right I think connection is now at the forefront of everybody's mind because we've all had that experience with its good moments and with its painful moments of not being able to connect yeah yeah and look this is you know leadership is a relationship it's a social construct it's a connection point leadership Mm. is between people and people are humans Mm. and so because leadership is a relationship, different people are going to need different things. Mm. People are going to have different desires to connect or speak up or, 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 right. So I, I also just want to say there's no blanket. There's no yeah. one size fits all mm. to creating more connection on your team. It's called it individually connecting with different people. Mm. Um, but I just want to share this. We had a study that we referenced in the book on authenticity that I thought was really quite interesting. And it showed it's directly connected to, to this. It found that the, there's three most important qualities that define a person's authenticity. And the first is honesty. And that's what I modeled before. Hey guys, I'm on a learning journey. Can you help me? Right. Yeah. The second is tied transparency and openness. Mm. So I'm going to give of myself a little bit and, and, you know, that invites a little bit of vulnerability. And the third I found very interesting, but it makes a lot of sense. And that is confidence. So Mm. I can stand in my vulnerability with confidence. I don't have to trade off my confidence. I can Mm. say, Oh gosh, you know, because I have done my work Yes, and I know who I am at my best. Mm. I hold myself in warm regard because Mm. I understand my intention. And I'm imperfect. So then I go, okay, that's just what happened. I was imperfect. I own it. I go back. Now let's lead from your best self in this moment together. Mm. And that can be very powerful, can't it? I'd be interested to just coming back to the practices, what has been the most impactful of the seven practices for you? Or should I say the most impactful thing you've done with with the seven practices? Most impactful thing. Because asking which practices are most impactful is almost too difficult because you have to start practice one. That's, that's where it comes from. Other, so. other, than, other than best self, that's, <laughs> that's a rhetorical question. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. It, it's all good. It's good. You know, I have to say that the, that in this era, season of my life, it turns out the practice I was most hesitant to include is the one that's probably most profoundly impacted me. And that is some of the tips and tools we include around fostering resilience, mm. particularly the notion of reflective sense-making. Uh, I tend to pick up and put down journal writing and gratitude writing and all that stuff. And and just to manage my, my best self and what I have spent a lot of time doing is consciously reflecting when I've experienced a setback either personally or professionally. And I remind myself and I remind everyone now that when we have a setback in our lives, whatever that is for us, 
we don't return after the setback to the place from which we had it. We catapult mm. forward and we're more mature, we're wiser, uh, we could be more thoughtful and we need to reflect on that mm. so that we can capitalize on the learning of the setback. And so I think rediscovering aspects of my my own value mm. while feeling some setback mm. In other words, muscling up around my resilience has been probably what's been most impactful of late. And I like thinking of that process you're describing as a rucksack on your back. And you know, you're intentionally having a look and thinking, okay, what no longer serves me? And you're You're not the same. Yeah. And and what do I need to move forward? And I think we we never explicitly have that discussion with ourselves, let alone with anyone else. So, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I, I want to share this as well. It's mm. not a practice, but the whole premise of thriving, mm-hmm. probably what's been most helpful is to know that the, that thriving is not a fixed spot. We're not going to do all these practices so that we can thrive. Mm. Thriving, kind of like returning to your best self and being your best self and leading your best self is a moment-to-moment practice some days. You know, yeah, this absolutely. hour, I'm thriving this conversation. I love to mm. talk about this stuff with mm. people this work, you know, in a, in a couple hours, I know I have a hard meeting to have, right? Like so I might not consider myself thriving, but yeah. you know, I, I, so I, I'm going to bring my best self, but I don't know if I, so, so if thriving is something we experience and re-experience, mm. the same is true for all of the practices and they evolve, yeah. right? So, so how I would define me as my authentic self at age 30 isn't how I would define me as my authentic self, maybe today, how exercise courage, Mm. how I make use of resilience, Mm. choices I make to establish a healthy team environment. Mm. Those have all, of course, matured and changed as I've grown. And for me, that's liberating. Mm. Absolutely. It's a lifelong learning journey and we're just getting better and better. I, I just love that. We're just getting better and better. And every time you talk to somebody different, you'll get a different perspective, which means that you're constantly f- unpacking your rucksack and repacking your rucksack. And that's why there's no destination and thriving is a way of being, isn't it? That's yeah. what we're aiming at is, which evolves, of course, and we have to stand back enough to let it evolve, which brings me to the systems. And, you know, we, we've spoken, we haven't spoken that much about bias, but we've been speaking about different perspectives, our own assumptions, bias, our best self. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of systemic bias in organizations and particularly women in leadership how do you think we can so are you seeing a shift is the first part of my question uh because you've been working on this subject for a very long time like I have have you seen a shift and how do you think we can start nudging the system effectively so first of all I've seen a shift where the top leader in the organization cares okay because I yep. think they're still a follow the leader organizational yep. context yeah right and that's why I encourage leaders who I coach to say, I'm a learner on the journey and I'm with you. I just don't mm-hmm. know what I don't know, right? It's like yeah. the hard window. It's like the blind spot. Like yeah. I just can't see what I can't see and I'm learning therefore. Look, I think the best thing that leaders can do is start with themselves. You know, mm-hmm. leave me. changing me changes we. And mm-hmm. we move into a more reflective, more aware place where we're starting to notice you know, our thoughts and feelings, and we're being, you know, not overly scripted, but conscious of our words and, mm. and 
and our affect. And then when we notice something, we say something. And look, I think you and I both come from a positive frame. Mm. Now I'm calling it appreciative upstanding. So upstanding is a moment to moment practice where if you see, let's just say, for example, somebody gets talked over in a meeting Mm. um, on a positive upstanding move could be in the moment saying, Hey, um, so-and-so were you trying to make a point there? I just want to make sure Mm. that you had that chance if they don't feel like they did. Or after the meeting, going to the person who might've interrupted and say, look, I know it wasn't your intention. Mm. And I think you talked over so-and-so a few times. Mm. And, you know, I just wanted to point this out because I really think that you're trying to have, so appreciative is Mm. assuming best intention. Yeah. When we're teaching people about being more conscious of their own behavior so that it's a more inviting culture, a better Mm. place to work, a more connecting you know, environment. Shaming them along the way is a losing strategy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Playing not not to win. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. And and so I I pretty much always assume best intent. Mm. And you know, I fight this fight too. It's like mm. I know he was purposeful just now. Mm. It's not okay. And so yeah, I mean then it comes down to and, and I get asked this a lot, particularly by women is, you know, how do I speak up about this? And how do I speak Mm. up about that? And the answer is always, to whom are you speaking up to? If that person is in a position of power, you might not want to take them on. Mm. Okay. So going back to your question, I think first and foremost, modeling the kind of appreciative work that we've been talking about during this Mm. whole podcast Mm. inside ourselves. Mm. It's a being, Mm. an awareness. And then saying, hey, I'm working on this. Yeah. I want to lead from my best self and I'm figuring out what that means. Mm. Come join me. Who are you yeah. at your best? Mm. What a great way to begin the dialogue as opposed to mm. don't do this, do that. Yeah. So you're taking a break from say and do to come back to the earlier distinction and you're spending time sitting in think and feel and yeah, sitting because, with think and yeah. feel. Yeah. And mm. in terms of real organizational change, I, I, we can talk all about that if you want. I, <laughs> I see, I have a very strong opinion about what I see works. If organizations are looking to advance women. Tell me more about that. What does work if if we are looking to advance women? Because I think that's for me the main question of sustainable change is yeah. how do you do it so that the change remains and it goes into the DNA of an organizational culture? Yeah. So look, I think it's I think it's got to be leader-led. Yeah. And I think it's a combination of two big buckets. One is creating a culture where women can thrive. Mm. And the other is equipping and enabling and empowering women. And the reason why we need to work with women is because there's a lot of unconscious barriers. There's a lot of unseen Mm. hurdles Mm. and the working world wasn't made for us by us. And we navigate a different terrain just by waking up women and look at the caretaking statistics. Look at the great she session. Yeah. There's a million yeah. women less in the workforce today than there were, you know, at March 2020. And, you know, that's a lot about the, the, the double bind, the mother mm. load or the caretaking load. So we need to help women stand in their best self, yeah. value themselves, understand who they are and mm. not pick away at their to-do list so that they can someday be tapped, right? Yeah. So yeah. A, you know, I think work with women to lift up and lift out the former creating an environment where women can thrive really requires executive leadership around 
their own inner learning journey mm. Mm. to understand their own blind spots, yeah. model a culture of learning so that everyone can come to the table with their gifts and their unique value and feel like they belong and contribute. Mm. It requires a commitment to create equity, you know, which means talent processes, talent systems, policies mm. need to be altered so that it honors difference and mm. the reality of the kinds of workforce we have today. Mm. Um, the culture needs to be readied for inclusive behaviors. And mm. so, you know, holding people accountable, not in a right, wrong, good, bad way, but incentivizing, right? Doing engagement scores, not to see if you're a good manager, but to see, gosh, people really love yeah. here. Yeah, to see how they experience that That's environment. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like uh, the environment is an experience that I value, mm. that I feel valued, mm. that I can bring my full self, mm. you know? Mm. So when I boil it all down, it's we have to pay attention to equipping and enabling women. Mm. It needs to be leader led by the executives. If the executives don't model the behavior, no one else will. We yes. have great insurrections and <laughs> bottoms up approach, mm. but that's not going to sustainably change. And I, I look, I think, I think the real deal comes down to sponsorship. You know, mm. the thing that works when mm. people who don't have access to certain decision makers, to certain rooms, to certain opportunities are being promoted by people who do. And so it's, you know, it's leaders talking positively behind the backs of, of others mm. and the time to get to know, in this case, female population of talent so that they can sponsor. Um, mm. Uh, mm. And, you know, when sponsorship efforts are deployed, formal sponsorship efforts, we start to see terrific change. Mm. Yeah. And they need to get curious, don't they, about the subject? about what sponsorship can bring where am I coming from if I'm coming from a, a, a place of privilege how can I use that to positively leverage doors and and you know opportunities for other people and how can I unlock potential for me it's all around thriving is also around acknowledging the potential in somebody and enabling either systems policies or that person to unlock his or her potential I think I think that's the curiosity part for me a hundred percent. So Susie, I got to tell you, you know, I, there are plenty of organizations who see the problem and don't want to do anything about yeah. it because they don't really understand the business case. And it's messy. There are so many organizations who want to create change. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I want to work with those people. Yeah. I want to work with the leaders who genuinely know this is not okay. Mm. We, are, we are seeing women move you know, leave the organization at greater mm. rates than men. We're having a harder time recruiting women. We're having a hard, hard time. Our brand isn't really known to be a great place to work. I want to change this. Mm. If that's the case, I sign me up. Mm. Sign me up. Mm. And but what it, was, what was your defining moment, Susan? When did you think, right, I, I want to do this work. I'm going to co-author that book. I'm going to get involved more and more in moving the needle on this massively important subject. Yeah, I have to tell you, I think I'm a, I'm a humanist at heart. Yeah. <laughs> what I mean by that is, mm. I, I you know I was raised by a single father and have a wonderful relationship with my mother, but she lived away and in a different in a different state. Mm. In the U.S. Men have been my coaches and my teachers and my leaders and 
and I have affection for mm. the intention of good, good men. And I think I see a lot of harshness and a lot of misunderstanding. And I think what really woke me up is how harsh women are with ourselves. Oh, yeah. And I, I didn't get started to solve equity. I got mm. started to solve harshness. Mm. Okay. I, I don't even think we can talk inclusion mm. if it's still acceptable to be disrespectful. Mm. Absolutely. So really, if you really want to know the truth, yeah. we're in the advanced class today. <laughs> if we're talking about gender equity in organizational life, because I actually don't think it's, we'll see it in my, in our lifetime until mm. we see a, frankly, love, love replace fear, right? So mm. fear-based behavior is, you know, deficient. Mm. It's harsh. It's critical. It's judgmental. It's, mm. it's scarcity-based, mm. right? Mm. Abundance, appreciation, curiosity, mm. empathy, connection, all of that, that's love-based. It's abundance. Yeah. yeah. And we're not going to see a lot no. of no. psychological safety or mm. great engagement scores until we fix the, the former. So I'm a little bit, this is a vehicle for which I can make some of the points I need to make about how to mm. be human. Yep. I agree. At work for yeah. engagement. Mm. So uh, and I care a lot, obviously, about mm. gender equity. And I think women, we're not going away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think that, yeah, the more I was on that quest, the better. And if I look at the statistics of 85% of leaders are reactive today, as a, so coming from a place of fear or reacting to a culture of fear, I think we just need to multiply the amount, <laughs> the number of people working on this quest to get to the starting point of abundance, you're right as opposed to the starting point of scarcity. Mm. Yeah. Eight out of 10 leaders are reactive today. That's why I get up every day. Yeah. Lower. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> okay. Time is running, but I would like to ask you just one more question. Would you have a final call to action for this huge quest for leaders out there looking to think, okay, what can I do, me as an individual leader tomorrow, to move the needle on this subject? Yeah. Start with, first of all, don't leave yourself behind. So what do you mm. need? Not? What enables your best self? What do you, what kind of environment do you appreciate working in when you're a change agent for yourself or for an organization or a team? Don't go it alone, you know, mm. ask for help along the way, you know, form a trusted circle to lean on, you know, inside and outside of work. And so mm. I think having some truth tellers, you know, I, I remind leaders that the more senior you are, the harder people laugh at your jokes and the less likely they are to tell you the truth. Yes. And so, you know, checking in with trusted people who mm. tell you the truth is a mm. great place to start. Mm. Paying attention to when other people are talked over or put down mm. and standing in a positive way. Say, you know, I don't, I don't know if mm. you meant across this way, but here's how it landed for me. And I, I just wouldn't want her to feel that way. Right. So these are moment to moment actions, Susie. These are mm. not policy changes. No, they are micro behavior changes all day, every day. Mm. Mm. That's it, has to, it has to start I'll there, doesn't it? My best. Yeah. Right. Okay. I'm going to leave my listeners with that. Then how can they turn up as their best selves and do that every day? Okay, Susan, thank you so much for coming and sharing your thoughts, your experience, your research, and what's in your book. Where can our listeners find out more about you and what you do? 
Thank you for asking. I I love keeping in touch with people on LinkedIn. Susan McEntee Brady is my LinkedIn. And uh, you can find all my social handles and a lot more about our Institute for Inclusive Leadership at inclusiveleadership.com. Okay, super. Thank you. And I will put that in the show notes so that people don't have to go searching for it. Terrific. Thank you. Thank you for a great conversation, Susan. Susie, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if so, head over to iTunes and give us your feedback and your review. And it's bye from me for now and see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk Transformation. <laughs>